The following podcast is equivalent to a TVMA rating, thanks to the author's strong and frequent use of adult language and graphic recollection of her sexual escapades. We strongly advise listening alone or with an extremely open-minded, politically incorrect companion, such as a gay bestie. Welcome to How Bitches Are Made, the podcast. I'm your host, Rachel Melvin. Thanks for joining us, guys. If this is your first listen, be sure to check out our introductory mini-sode, which gives you a brief overview of this podcast and introduces you to the cycle of how a bitch is made. If you're a returning listener, welcome back, bitch. Let's continue on our journey, shall we? With this week's story. The following is a true story, as sad as that is for me to admit. Names have been changed to protect both the innocent and the anything but. Chapter 4. Bearing It All One of the strangest things about being an actor is maintaining a thick skin while having to stay completely and utterly vulnerable. It's a challenging and delicate balance, especially when you throw having to do it naked into the equation. That's why there's a little something called a nudity writer to help make things easier. Well, at least it's supposed to. When I shot my first sex scene in my early 20s, I was working in daytime, where thanks to network censorship, nudity writers were irrelevant, and thus, something I was pretty unfamiliar with until my late 20s. My character was supposed to lose her virginity to her boyfriend, who, incidentally, was my real-life boyfriend as well. What can I say? When it comes to love and hot boys, I like to go method. Anyway... We'd had sex plenty of times since our second date, Uh, only those experiences were far more pleasant, what with actual penetration, and the welcome absence of bronzing powder and nervous sweat baking underneath set lights. While I wasn't necessarily uncomfortable with the idea of climbing naked into someone else's bed with him, there was some trepidation around having to do it in front of 60 crew members, most of whom were male and old enough to be my father. But because I didn't want to seem unprofessional, or worse, green, I chose to keep any and all anxieties to myself and pretended to know exactly what I was doing. You know, sort of like actual sex in your 20s. I reasoned it was part of my job that I'd have to do it eventually, and there was no time like the present. So instead of allowing it to limit me, I saw it as an opportunity to expand my range as an actress. Strolling onto set that morning, I noticed my Italian heritage had managed to betray me yet again, magically sprouting a few errant hairs along my bikini line. Despite the fact I thought I'd ripped them all from their follicles the night before, I stopped by the makeup department to see if my makeup artist could work some of her magic. As Zelda patted down my vagina with a powder puff, Cassidy, a veteran actress in her 50s, took her opportunity to get intimate with me as well. Sweetie. I just wanted to talk to you about your love scene today. Who's directing your episode? Dave. They're going to try to get you down to pasties, but listen to me. You don't need to be in anything less than a bra, okay? Oh, I don't mind. If pasties are better for the shot, then- They're not. They're just better for them. Trust me. Don't be afraid to only do what you're comfortable with. Back then, it never would have occurred to me there may be a world where manipulation existed on the other side of the camera where negative energies lurked waiting to prey upon impressionable young women, coercing them to do whatever their personal agenda deemed mandatory under the name of authority. After all, 
I'd never cross paths with Harvey Weinstein, and the Me Too movement had yet to exist. So of course, I felt entirely comfortable ignoring Cassidy's warning and wearing nipple pasties when they were inevitably suggested by my director. By the time I got to my 30s, though, I was far less trusting, albeit only slightly more protected. It was winter in LA, every actor's favorite time to be filming an exterior scene in their swimsuit, or in my case, a sex scene in their underwear. I stood on a rooftop overlooking downtown LA, puffing on my vape pen like some romanticized version of a film noir actor. I was fighting anxiety that seemed to have a stronger hold over me now that I was in my 30s. I should have been more comfortable, though, with 10 more years of experience under my belt and a nudity writer involved. Which is why, as I watched the lighting department scurry around the rooftop trying to finish their setup, I couldn't make any sense of my feeling vaguely paralyzed. With the same thoughtful rationale of a therapist, I immediately addressed all my patients' obvious and known concerns. Are you afraid of mom and dad seeing this and knowing your sex moves? You can always tell him not to watch. Are you afraid Chase will get a boner when you're on top of him? I know how uncomfortable you get seeing others embarrass, but I also know there's an odd sense of comfort you feel with a hard dick between your legs. What about that creepy sound guy? Are you worried he might end up enjoying his job a little too much tonight? Or is it possible you're the unprofessional one here? I wasn't sure if it was maturity or if I simply felt more comfortable addressing my worries to a predominantly female production team. But in contrast to my 20-year-old self, I chose to vocalize my concerns. Annie? Hey, um, can we make sure that this is a closed set and that absolutely no one is here that doesn't need to be? Of course. Because I'm already feeling really uncomfortable for some reason. Is it me? Are you worried I'll get a boner? Don't be offended if I do, don't be offended if I don't. I mean, you will, but I can handle it if you can. That came out wrong. Or did it come out right? Do you want me to get you something? You mean like a whiskey? If that's what you need, I'm sure we could find you some. I was kidding. I wasn't. I'd take some whiskey. Really? Hell yes. Okay, yeah, then some whiskey, I guess, then. I'll have someone run out to get it. My body began to shiver. Assuming it was the temperature drop, the makeup and wardrobe departments rushed over to cover me in blankets. It didn't help. My shaking only intensified with every passing moment. I wasn't sure what was causing my body to have such a physical reaction, especially when the script specifically indicated my character would be having sex in her bra in this scene. But thinking perhaps I might be expected to take more graphic liberties now that a network wasn't around to censor me, I tried addressing the self-consciousness surrounding that. Also, Annie, maybe it's because I'm a dancer. I don't know. Um, I feel like if we maybe choreograph the sex, I might feel better. Like when we're both supposed to orgasm at the same time, which is completely unrealistic how easy we're making that look, by the way. I'm just, I'm nervous about the orgasm. I don't want it to look stupid and like I don't know what I'm doing. I would not let you look stupid. This is going to be shot beautifully. We're going to have the sunrise over you, silhouetting your bodies. What if the people in the surrounding buildings have binoculars? Has anyone thought about that? Because, like, I don't want people watching us pretend to have sex and think we're actually having sex. I mean, I, I do, but just, you know, not until this is airing. They're too far away. No one will ever see you. Not only was Annie clearly nearsighted, she was obviously unfamiliar with the concept of binoculars. It was around then, and in suspiciously record time for four o'clock in the morning, 
our bootlegger, in the form of a PA, arrived. She opened her jacket to offer Chase and I airplane-sized bottles of Jack, and with the sun threatening to rise before getting the shots we needed, I had no choice but to put my faith in my director, some liquor in my body, and hope for the best. It was the most amount of whiskey and puffs on my vape pen in a single evening I'd ever had. And yet, remarkably, I only felt the kind of buzz that comes from having too much caffeine on an empty stomach. Apparently, adrenaline has the ability to overpower any other kind of chemical one can ingest. If I'd had any hangover the next morning, it was an emotional one. I felt shitty about my behavior, my lack of professionalism, and ultimately my performance. I'd spent years working on my sexuality, on screen and off. So much so, it's virtually become who I am as a person. I constantly answer the phone like I'm a sex phone operator. Hi. I pole dance to work out. I find nothing wrong with casually talking to my family about butt plugs and cock rings over Thanksgiving dinner. Fuck, I've even had a conversation with my grandma about jizz. In her day, they called it jizzum. Just some random trivia for you. Anyway, for the life of me, I could not make sense of my apprehension that night. All I could do was begin to doubt myself as a performer. Maybe I wasn't capable of being as great of an actress as I wanted to be. Maybe Cassidy's words had left an undeniable impression on me that once mixed with self-awareness had created limits within me I'd never considered or before acknowledged. With my big sex scene only days away, I really started to panic. If I couldn't have sex in a bra on a rooftop, how the hell did I plan to do it in a shower wearing less? Especially when it had still not been agreed upon what less exactly was. You see, what made my nudity writer for this particular project so unique was that up until a few days prior, it didn't exist. With negotiations still underway and parameters still unset, I called my agents to help me navigate these uncharted waters. So, since they still haven't gotten their shit together, here's what you're gonna do. Okay. You're gonna wear a thong and cutlets. And if they have a problem with you wearing a thong and cutlets, you get a walk-off set because you're not contractually bound to do anything else because they didn't have a contract. And since it's pay or play, you'll still get paid. What if they want me to wear nipple pasties? Uh, okay, if production's pressuring you to wear them and you're not that uncomfortable with it, you can tell them you're being cool and put them on. But here's the problem with nipple pasties. If you wear them, you have to wear bright neon gaffing tape or something with obnoxious print underneath because those fuckers can go in there when they're editing and they'll just give you someone else's boobs. Really? Oh, yeah, it happens all the time. It happened to one of our clients the other day. I always tell my actors to wear neon stripes so it fucks with anything they might try and do in post, especially if you think you've done anything to piss them off, because revenge editing is the worst, and it's real. It never occurred to me there may also be a world where people are bullied into doing something against their will, or otherwise be punished for standing up for themselves. I hung up the phone and noticed my anxiety had yielded to some sense of control, and all of a sudden... Everything made sense. I didn't have limitations as an actress. I had boundaries as a human being. Boundaries that when I really began to think about it had been violated from the very start of production and had only continued to get worse in the most vulnerable of circumstances. Take, for instance, my very first love scene with Chase, which was shot only a week earlier. He'd woken up not feeling well and pleaded with production to push his scenes to a different day. Not just because he was self-conscious, but more importantly, he was concerned he could be contagious. Production reluctantly called in a doctor who declared with absolute confidence he was not. Despite the fact she also couldn't identify whatever Chase had, 
or what might have caused it. I suppose it's also worth mentioning here that this doctor was related to our executive producer. I watched production minimize Chase's concern, jeopardize the cast and crew's health, including my own, and bully my co-star into filming a scene he was highly uncomfortable shooting at the time, all the while treating him like a child and a leper. Oh, Chase, you're perfectly fine and well enough to do the scene. Oh, don't touch me, though. It was later that very same day I learned from that very same producer, production expected me to take my clothes off. Despite the fact we were already two weeks into principal photography, and it had never been discussed. The more I thought about that flagrant disregard for safety, both physical and emotional, the more I realized that's precisely what had been holding me back on the rooftop. My consciousness may have been too wrapped up in obligation and responsibility to notice the lack of trust, but my fight-or-flight sense was clocking everything, begging me to bolt. Blood rushed to my temples as all the pieces began to fall into place, and I began to recognize all the things my subconscious had— Flags should have been positioned around us to block the view of people who might have been trying to watch from surrounding buildings. Crew should have been kept inside, instead of further down the rooftop, where Chase and I were still visible in the scene. Batteries to cameras and lights should have been at the ready to prevent me from having to wait around outside in my underwear for someone to change them. Multiple times. And my superiors should have been the ones overseeing and enforcing it all. But, just as in the case of Chase's illness... Time and money appeared far more important than any sense of safety or security. Fueled by violation and the realization that no one on this set was going to protect me but myself, I sought out my director. I did my best to temper my rage, aware of just how powerful and unpredictable emotions can be when they sit behind the driver's seat of any conversation, and tried to maintain a sterile tone the entire time. Annie, hey, I just want to talk about the love scene and make sure today goes smoother than the last time we did this. Okay. So the only person that should be inside the bathroom with me is the cameraman. The sound guy, he can mic the bathroom and leave the boom on the ground. He doesn't need to be in there. No one does. And there needs to be a robe waiting for me on the outside of this door after every single take. Okay. Sure. Thank you. Of course. And Rachel, can I take a look at what wardrobe has for you for the shower? As I led my director to my dressing room, I braced myself for what I anticipated would be a fairly big ordeal. And to be honest, I hoped it would be. I wanted to walk off that set in the name of self-respect, and not just for me, but for anyone who'd been manipulated or bullied by an authoritative figure, especially into doing something that made them extremely uncomfortable. And now, I'd been given the legal freedom to be the badass I've always wanted— I started to imagine what that might feel like, recalling to all my friends and family such a pivotal moment in both my career and my adulthood. I just hoped that it would be easier done than said. These are what you're wearing? Rachel, come on. This is what my team and I agreed to. (sighs) There's no way I can shoot around these. I shrugged, offering little help and trying to remain steadfast despite her exasperated expression. Well, we might as well not even shoot the scene then. There's no way you're not going to see these. They're huge. To be fair, even nipple pasties are huge when it comes to my non-existent boobs, which is why I'm usually pretty comfortable wearing them. But after the conversation with my agent and my experience on this particular set, I knew it was in my best interest not to do so. So, while Annie underwent a stress-induced freakout, I did my best not to let empathy chip away at what I was hoping would be impenetrable armor. The truth is, I liked Annie, and I knew she was genuinely trying her best, despite an incompetent crew and team of producers, both of whom failed to set her up for success. 
I didn't want to be another on the list of people making things more difficult for her. And as the clock ticked away on another Sunday, I didn't want to be on the receiving end of death stares from the crew anymore either. It was time to walk off. And just as I was about to, I suddenly realized that might not necessarily be in my best interest either. You see, while there may not have been any legal consequence, I've been around long enough to know there'd be a consequence nonetheless. There always is. Either I'd make someone else's life easier by compromising myself and my standards, or I'd uphold my self-respect and consequently risk being known as a stubborn bitch who's difficult to work with. These were my two options. Whether it was ultimately compassion that got the best of me, the realization my reputation might suffer, or a little bit of both, I reluctantly conceded. I prayed to God that in some way, he still considered me either a fool or a small child, if not both, at least enough to protect me when I couldn't. Especially after wardrobe informed me they didn't have any knee on tape. The most painful, daunting, scarring aspect of this whole scenario was that I was put into this position by women. All my life, I'd been taught to believe women should have each other's backs, but they didn't. In fact, the only back they had was Chase's, because that was the only body part you ever saw when that scene eventually aired anyway. Makes you wonder why pasties were even necessary to begin with. I guess the truth is as transparent as the silicone meant to cover my nipples in the first place. Alright guys, welcome to episode number four of How Bitches Are Made. This week we are talking about bearing it all. Last week we talked about how to avoid coming off as the bad bitch and what you can learn from encountering one. And just to remind you, or in case you missed last week, a bad bitch is someone who is using their voice incorrectly. It means they're responding to a situation out of raw emotion or defensiveness, usually when they've been triggered, instead of handling it in a calm, poised manner. And if we reference the cycle of how a bitch is made, this typically happens in what we call the regurgitating shit stage. This week, we're going to take a look at what happens when you try to handle things from the opposite side of the spectrum in a way that's mindful of trying to become the shit or the best bitch possible. The first thing I want to talk about is the title, Bearing It All. I titled it this way because it's a pun, obviously, and we all know how much I fucking love a good pun, but it plays at exposing oneself emotionally and physically, but also feeling so overwhelmed that you don't know how to best handle something or a situation. This is kind of what we talked about a little bit in episode one briefly, how women typically fall into just one of two categories, either the doormat or the bitch. It's two extremes, and when we don't want to be thought of as a bitch, we get stuck in the doormat phase. And then what happens when you gain awareness about being in the doormat phase is you don't want to be stuck in that either. So you you kind of freeze and you don't know how to act at all, especially on your behalf. And that becomes really hard to do in a relationship, of course, because you have high stakes, but it becomes even harder in the workplace. So when we're young and naive, we're ignorant to how we might be being taken advantage of, as I was in the first part of this story. We're too trusting. I definitely didn't have any experience in the acting world when I had first booked this job on the soap. I was really young. I didn't have anything to liken it to. I didn't have a ton of friends yet in the industry to, like, collaborate and exchange stories with. And my team at the time, my agents and managers, were very much shut up and do whatever they say because you're expendable and they can recast you in a heartbeat. So 
As far as the way I was programmed into going into this job and hence this situation was I'm just going to do whatever makes everyone else happy. And as we know from our first three episodes, that's like the worst thing that you can do to yourself. But at this point, I'm a blissful 20-something, so I have no idea how much I'm hurting myself, which is great. So when I was in this situation and they were telling me they wanted me to be down in nipple pasties or whatever, I was like, cool, bro, whatever you want to do, I'm here for you. Just fucking don't fire me. That was my only MO. So when I had this actress, Cassidy, come up to me, it was very interesting because she was kind of notorious for staying in her lane, not meddling, not inserting herself in areas that weren't her immediate concern or business, and she certainly was never part of drama. So the fact that she had come up to me did kind of raise my antenna, but not enough for me to pick up what she was putting down, which was essentially her own experience that she was bestowing wisdom on to me from. So clearly, in retrospect, I can see that she had kind of been manipulated into taking her clothes off and knowing what I know now had ultimately realized it it was senseless. It was not necessary. And she probably felt really dirty after and was trying to spare me that same situation and those same feelings. But by the time I was in my 30s, I had more awareness, obviously. The thing is, once you have awareness, it becomes a little bit more complicated because you you do know how you can be taken advantage of. And sometimes we don't know how to avoid that. A lot of times we don't want to ask questions because that could show further inexperience and that might allow us to be taken advantage of even more. And other times we don't want to rock the boat, especially when you're an actor, because you are so expendable. Now, very quickly, before we get into the whole nudity aspect of this story, I want to talk about some of the other things that were going on on this particular set that I did not mention. I did mention the um, illnesses that were going ignored or disregarded. But some of the other things were quite serious. For instance, there was this one day where we were driving in a parking lot. And we didn't have permits for it, which means that it's a live parking lot. And this was a shopping center with restaurants. So what that means is you have everyday people minding their business, going about their day that we're having to be mindful of. That's unforeseen variables and surprises that might pop out at you that you're not prepared to deal with. And in this case, we're driving in a live parking lot. We did not have a stunt person. We had an actual actor driving a car, which is fine. But when you have somebody that's like trying to remember their lines and do a great performance and trying not to hit people who don't know that we're filming a, a, a movie, it, it gets a little shaky. <laughs> and then to add on top of that, there's the pressure of him having to hurry up and reset and get back to one so we could do another take before we lose light. So I'm sitting in the passenger seat holding a light, which is another big no-no red flag. So I'm holding a light, reading lines off camera with this actor who's going easily 30 to 35 miles per hour in a live parking lot trying to reset. And then my director's in the back seat. Her cameraman is sitting beside her. And then the focus puller is in the trunk. Like all of that was so, so bad. Another situation was there was no set medic. Always have to have a medic on set in case anything goes wrong. We did not have a medic. That was another red flag. There were so many things that were going on on this set that I knew were wrong, but because I didn't want to rock the boat, I didn't want to call SAG and report them. 
So as a result, all these things kept happening to me and I felt the pressure and I felt the lack of safety. And what ended up happening was my body started reacting. And that's what happens a lot of times is when your consciousness is ignoring things that your subconscious is picking up on, your body starts physically reacting. That's your animal instinct trying to alert you that something is wrong. And what I have come to realize is it's ultimately your body telling you you're betraying yourself. You should always, always pay attention to your body language and the alerts of your nervous system because it's telling you more than you realize. A lot of times, as in the case of myself in this story, we ignore our body though. Like I did in the in, after the first scene, I just ignored it. I didn't really understand what was going on with me. I didn't have the awareness that this was my intuition yet. I was trusting other people more than myself. And again, this comes back to the importance of knowing yourself. And we talked about this in episode one. When you stand for something, you won't fall for anything. You can more effectively protect yourself when you have clarity on who you are, what your morals are, what's important to you, what you value, and when you have self-respect. You need to respect yourself more than what you're doing or who you're doing it with. This was my problem. I was prioritizing my career before I was prioritizing myself as a human being. I was so afraid of coming off as the diva or the bad bitch or rocking the boat that I worried speaking up and out against things that were happening that were completely wrong would jeopardize my ability to get future jobs. And I think that that's a really big part of the problem is women know that we have fewer opportunities, so we're afraid to speak up and we're really afraid to say no to things, even if we know that we should be saying no to them. I want to share with you a relevant story that also comes out of Hollywood from VanityFair.com about Uma Thurman on the set of Kill Bill. You probably know about this whole thing that happened where she was driving a vehicle. She's not a stunt woman, obviously, and it ended up crashing and no one ever saw the footage until recently with the Me Too movement and she started speaking out about a lot of things that happened on that set. Well, I just want to reference it because it's kind of relevant to what we're talking about here. In this article, she has said that she was urged to drive the car herself despite her misgivings. I just thought that that was interesting because that was her intuition telling her not to do something and she willingly did it anyway. She did not say no. There are probably thousands of stories like this in Hollywood alone, but I'm sure in other workplace environments too. We're just so afraid to say no because we're worried about how that will affect our future employment or our reputation. I want to switch gears into talking about the nudity aspect of this story now. I'm going to read to you via a law firm what a nudity writer is so you can understand. According to the law offices of Gordon P. Firemark, who is not my entertainment lawyer, but an entertainment lawyer nonetheless, a nudity writer is a separate document that accompanies a performer's contract whenever nudity is involved in a project. It must include specific descriptions of the exact nature of the nude, semi-nude, or love scenes, along with a detailed explanation of the entire involved and any other relevant information required to fully disclose the nature of the nudity. Typically, they contain very detailed narrative descriptions, even excerpts from the screenplay to avoid any dispute or misunderstanding about what's contemplated. The nudity writer must be presented to the performer well in advance of the signing of the contract, so the artist will have sufficient opportunity to consider without the pressure to sign. Emphasis on that last part, because that is what was missing from my experience. 
Now, I didn't have a nudity writer at all until we were already in the middle of production. So I had perfectly good cause to not think I had to get nude whatsoever. The producer had said to me, well, you read the script. You knew that there were love scenes. But as you can hear from this law office, it must include specific descriptions of the exact nature of the nude, semi-nude, or love scenes, along with detailed explanations of the attire involved and any other relevant information required to fully disclose the nature of the nudity. So this was stuff that had never been discussed with me, and they were using it to make me feel bad and bully me into doing what they wanted, which was just so fucked up. And now I'm going to read to you another article from Variety.com. This one is about Evangeline Lilly on the set of Lost. She says, quote, in season three, I'd had a bad experience on set with being basically cornered into doing a scene partially naked, and I felt I had no choice in the matter. I was mortified and was trembling when it finished. I was crying my eyes out, and I had to go do a very formidable, very strong scene thereafter. In season four, another scene came up where Kate was undressing, and I fought very hard to have that scene be under my control, and I failed to control it again. So I then said, that's it. No more. You can write whatever you want. I won't do it. I will never take my clothes off on this show again. And I didn't. So a couple things jump out at me from that. One is that she was trembling. Her body was alerting her that she was doing something wrong, which was in this case betraying herself, as in my case as well. And then the other thing that jumps out at me is that she was on a fucking network show. So I'm like, why are they even trying to get her to take her clothes off? You're never going to see anything anyway. Which is the whole point, right? Like, this is nonsense at some level, because what is the point? Now I'm going to reference this article from ABC News about Selma Hayek on the set of Frida, where she talks about Harvey Weinstein and her experience with him. She says that Weinstein threatened to shut down production if she did not agree to do a fully nude sex scene with co-star Ashley Judd. She says, quote, it was clear to me he would never let me finish this movie without him having his fantasy one way or another, end quote. The actress agreed but said she suffered a nervous breakdown while shooting the scene and had to distance herself from the film when shooting wrapped. It's so fucking crazy to me how the powers that be put us in these situations and really give us no choice. Because like Selma, who is saying no, 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 then they're threatening to shut down the whole production. So now she is responsible for all these people being out of work. Like, that's the ramification. Even though it's not her responsibility, people will think it's her responsibility. And that is the weight and the pressure that we're put in when we're put into situations like this. How the fuck does a person navigate their way out of this? It's crazy. When the whole parking lot thing happened, I was really just so consumed by anxiety, fear, and panic that I asked for five minutes. And I went to my trailer and I asked my co-star to come in and, and calm me down. And I asked for him to be a sounding board to help guide me in the best way possible because I didn't know what the fuck to do. I also thought maybe having like a male perspective would be really beneficial to helping me know how to proceed going forward. And he basically just validated everything that I was feeling, which made me feel better, but it also made me feel worse. So at that point, I was fully prepared to walk off set. And luckily, they had called rap before I had the opportunity to do that because we ran out of daylight. I'm really grateful 
for that divine intervention because what it allowed me to do was to go home, cool off, process things in a very calm way, and then come into set the next day and have a very poised conversation with my producer. I had just told her, these are my boundaries and these are my standards and these are my expectations. I have felt very disrespected on this set and it can no longer continue. And she was really receptive and even compassionate, I would say. From that point on, I actually do think that things did change on set. They did get a lot better. I definitely felt she was more mindful and aware and considerate and checked in with both me and Chase to make sure that everything was going smoothly and we were comfortable and happy. And it was great until that very last day of shooting where the whole nudity thing had come up. And again, this nudity writer was never in place, so they had no grounds to tell me to do anything. I had all of the control and all of the power, which is what is so tragic about this whole thing. With everything that I'd experienced and all the incentive I had and all of the legal protection to walk off that set, and I didn't. And why didn't I? Well... It turns out it's a lot harder to be a bitch than you would think, even in the most acceptable of circumstances. And we're going to take a look at that more in episode seven, actually. But I think when I really try to dissect my choice for sticking around, it was because I felt like I wanted to support my female director. I didn't want to let her down. I didn't want to make things more difficult. I just wanted to finish the shoot and do it in the least painful way possible. I think the whole takeaway in all of this is that we have to start implementing standards and boundaries in the workplace as well. And we need to start having more self-respect than respect for what we're doing and who we're doing it with. We need to get comfortable saying no. We need to heed our intuition when our bodies are trying to tell us or alert us to something. And we need to speak up at the first sign of wrongdoing. We can't keep our mouths shut and let resentment build and wait until a situation gets too bad for us to finally speak up. Enough of that. And then finally, I think the biggest takeaway here is you really have to trust yourself more than anyone and anything, regardless of your level of experience. If something doesn't feel right or it's not adding up, that means something. Pay attention to that. Because again, you are the only one looking out for you. No one else is. You have to protect yourself to the best of your ability. And yes, you're not always going to be able to do that. If you don't have the experience that taught you the lesson you need to get through the next one, you can't do that. But you just have to remember that you are the only one looking out for you. And that is your biggest responsibility. Make sure that you're protected. As I mentioned earlier this episode in the story, the most scarring, heartbreaking aspect of this whole experience was that it happened at the hands of women. And that was just really, really painful. When we talk about three ways a bitch is made, heartbreak, injustice, and acts of God, heartbreak doesn't just have to be from a significant other. I think most women listening to this would agree. Heartbreak is much more painful when it comes at the hand of your friends, particularly female friends, or in this case, just female co-workers, counterparts, what have you. I kind of brushed upon a little bit why that is of women feeling like they just don't have as many opportunities in the workplace. But next week, we're going to delve into that topic a little further when we discuss my experience of trying to live life like a man as a woman. So be sure to join us for that. Thank you guys so much for listening this week. 
If you're liking what you're hearing, please be sure to like us and subscribe and share with other fellow bitches you think would like this podcast too. If you'd like to check out more stories like the one you've heard here today, be sure to listen to our other episodes or visit howbitchesaremade.com for the transcripts of all of our episodes. You can also check out blog posts that don't make it to the podcast, join our community of bitches, and see references made on all of our episodes. To stay up to date, you can also always follow us on social media. Facebook and Instagram were at HowBitchesAreMade, and Twitter is at HabamTweets. To follow me personally, I'm found at the Rachel Melvin across all platforms. Thank you guys for joining us, and remember, consistency is key. Stay bitchy, my friends. How Bitches Are Made is written and produced by Rachel Melvin. 